here we are without any further ado in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, studying through the book of Ephesians and continuing here. In, in chapters 1 through 3, we've talked a lot about doctrine, right? We've got, we got into the doctrine of uh, salvation, right? We've talked about sin, uh, we've gotten into some deep things, right? Before the foundation of the world, God made this plan for redemption, Father, Son, and Spirit, and, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but made alive in Christ, and there's this great opportunity and privilege and uh, blessing of relationship with Jesus that we have as believers in Him, and, and through that, we have the gift of eternal life, and we've studied about these essential doctrines uh, we've, we've further looked at how we are his workmanship, the, the handiwork, the, the God's masterpiece, this glorious work of art, and we as individuals as well as the church, God has made this, and not just us here in this church right here now, but the church, the body of Christ across the world for generations, and this is part of his workmanship, and we've seen so much of the riches of God, and we've seen so much of the ability of God. Now, out of that, we begin here, chapter 4, where we shift gears a little bit into now, we have a responsibility. We have a, a, a calling as the church. We have a challenge. We have an exhortation, a word of exhortation that Paul is giving to us, the church, as he was giving to the church of Ephesus. And what he's essentially challenging us with here is that we need to learn to apply the Word of God to our lives. I've said it many times before, but the Word of God will be useless to us unless we learn to apply it to our lives. We need the Word of God to change us. We need to apply it to our lives. And so we begin here, verse 1, as it says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Paul this prisoner of the Lord. And he's saying, therefore, uh, we're going to jump to that for a moment. I, as he says, I, Paul, therefore, and we know, of course, what is it therefore? We go back, and that's what reminds us of all these things, not just the verse before or the statement before, but we go back through these three previous chapters to see who God is, what he does, God's riches, God's ability, we've been talking so much about those things throughout the book of Ephesians. God's riches of grace, of mercy, wisdom, glory, power. And then God's ability, last week we talked about that, how he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or even imagine. And so we see God's riches, we see God's ability, and now a response to God's riches and ability. So we're saying, therefore, because of the character of God, because of who he is, because of how great he is, how powerful he is, because of what he does, the work that he's done in us and through us, and because of the work of salvation, the work of redemption, Paul is saying, we have to respond. Now he himself saying, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, he's saying, look, I, I've been captivated by God, not by Rome, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. And we've talked about that already, that he is in chains, and he is not, but he's not recognizing it to be his chains that are because of the authority of Rome or the authority of the Jews, but under the authority of God himself. Paul bringing a reminder back to us to say that God is in control. 
under the authority with the Lord's permission and on the, Lord, on the Lord's mission. This is what he's all about. Remembering that there is purpose in his chains. Seeing God's purpose over his own circumstance and not getting just caught up in his circumstance. You know, we, get, we have bad circumstances. If we were in prison, unjustly put into prison, uh, we would have a lot to say about that, wouldn't we? We would have a lot to complain about that. You know, when, when things are, are against our rights, then we have a lot to say about it. And, and, and sometimes, yeah, okay, do we have rights and we want to be able to speak up on our own behalf? But in reality, what is our purpose? Is our purpose to prove ourselves right and to be somehow justified in the flesh? Or is our purpose to glorify God? Well, last week we talked about that. That is the purpose of the believer, and that is the purpose of the church, to glorify God. And so Paul is taking the advantage of this opportunity to see the purpose in his chains. As a prisoner of the Lord, he gives this exhortation to the church to say, look, I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to be used by God. In the midst of these chains, in the midst of difficult circumstances, are we just longing to get out? Are we just longing to be relieved of our chains, to be set free? Or do we, like Paul, build God's kingdom and build up the body of Christ? That's what Paul is doing. He's building up the body. He's, he's praying. In prison, he's praying and he's writing letters. He became a prayer warrior and a letter writer in, in, in these chains. And out of that comes flowing this heart for the church that he, he cares so much about the unity of the church. And so now with these prayers and, and with this doctrine that Paul has shared with us through these first few chapters and, and his prayer over the church, he challenges the church. He's got a word of exhortation. So with what Paul has gone through in life and with the doctrine that he teaches there's great authority that Paul has. And so with that authority, with that great influence that he has, he's, he has a word for the church. And that word he starts with to say, I beseech you, or I implore you, or I plea with you, or I beg you. It's not just a command. In his place of authority, naturally he might have said, I command you, listen to me. But he didn't take that authority and make any, give any command or demand. He came with that authority and he said, I beg you, I beseech you, I implore you. Which is to say, this is so important. It's not just a command coming from Paul who planted these churches. Say, this is how it's done, guys, and you better make sure it's done right. But he said, I beg you. This is essential. And sometimes that can be even more valuable than a command. We'll leave the commands to Jesus. But he says, I beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And this is, first of all, there's a call to walk worthy. And that's really not what this is about here. This is so much bigger than just walking worthy. But we could take that word and say, hey, you know what? There's a great reminder here. Walk worthy. 
And what does that essentially mean, to walk worthy? Well, we can't be worthy, but we can be clothed in his righteousness. But to walk worthy in response to God, in response to his love and his grace and his mercy, his wisdom and his glory and his power, we should naturally respond to walking with him and walking like him. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. We should look like Jesus. The word Christian means little Christ, so we should look like him. I'm reminded of when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, and they're going back, and you know, we could look at the Gospel of John, and, and they're going back, and they like to kind of drop names of, of his, historic people and fathers of the faith. So they go back to Moses constantly. They're talking about Moses and the influence that Moses has and the law and that they're all about the law. And we look to Moses and then, oh, actually, we'll go back even further. How about Abraham? They say, our father Abraham. And, and then they go back, try to go even further. Well, God is our father. And Jesus says to him, you are sons of the devil. Because why? You don't look like your father. He said, you don't look like Abraham who was a man of faith? You don't look like your father God that you claim to be your father. You know who you look like? You look like the devil. In your whole religious world that you've built up, in this hierarchy that you've built up, you are sons of the devil. For us, this challenge to us, that if we are in Christ, we are his workmanship meaning we are being remade into the image of Christ, then we should look like Christ. As followers of Jesus, we should look more and more like him. And listen, there's no better time to start than right now. Maybe you've not been walking with Jesus. Maybe you, have, you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you don't look like Jesus. Listen, now is the time. There's no better time. Don't wait. Don't say, I'll get to that eventually. Give your life to Jesus that you might walk with him and you might look like him. And so there's this word to say walk worthy, but actually even further, more specifically, what Paul is saying here is this is a call to walk worthy after there's this great emphasis given to the value and the blessing of the church, the mystery that is the church that we've been studying about, right? And so if we look at this mystery that is the church and specifically the unity of the church, the oneness of the church, that's what Paul is saying. The church, the body of Christ, there is a high calling. And if you are going to be called the, the church, the body of Christ, the sons and daughters of God, this high calling is to walk in unity, to, to live life together, to be in fellowship together, to look out for each other's interests and not just for your own. To walk worthy of the calling is to walk in the unity that Christ has already accomplished through the cross. Now, let's focus on that for a moment. Christ has accomplished the unity. It's not our responsibility to make unity happen. It's our responsibility to maintain the unity that Christ has already established and accomplished through the cross. 
Sometimes we try to make unity happen out of all different things, like favorite color, you know, favorite sports team, favorite whatever. But that's fake, it's false. And there's all sorts of things that we, even within church and within religion or within denominations, we come up with these ideas of, okay, we're going to have unity over philosophy of ministry or over this ideology or that ideology, but true unity is about Jesus. And there are essential doctrines, of course, that we need to be focused on, but mostly it is Jesus himself. So Paul, giving this great word of exhortation to respond to God's greatness, God's ability, God's riches, and understanding that we've grown in these things, in in our understanding of these things, and living out the scriptures now is the word of exhortation. We need to apply. We need to live out the scriptures. So how do we do that? Well, Paul will get into that now. In verse 2, he says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. This is a, a, the beginning of a how-to. How do we walk in unity? How do we walk worthy of that calling, that great high calling, which is to love one another, to be a, a unified body of Christ that, that he has accomplished? He has torn down the wall of separation. How do we do that? How do we live that out with all lowliness? And this, the word lowliness is in reference to the humility of the mind. And Paul will actually explain it in a different way, but more specifically in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. This is an explanation of lowliness. Paul writing another letter, and there's so, such similarities between Paul's letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There's a lot of similarities, but he does explain certain things in different ways. So this is an expression or an explanation of lowliness, the humility of the mind, to not esteem ourselves or think of ourselves in our own minds, in our own ideas, better than others. We're really good at that though. We are so good at it. So what Paul is saying, look, there's a natural tendency that we need to fight against with all lowliness. It's going to take all you've got to esteem others better than yourself because our natural tendency in our own thoughts, in our own minds is to think very highly of ourselves to think that we're really awesome and we have something really great to offer the world around us and everybody else needs to notice that, right? I mean, that's the reality. We think very highly of ourselves. But Paul gives this reminder. Our minds, listen, if our thoughts and our minds are set on Christ set on the things above and set on, even as we talked about in these last three chapters, the riches of God and the ability of God. If we focus on those things, then quite naturally, we're gonna think more lowly of ourselves because we'll be amazed by how great God is. And naturally, we will have this lowliness of mind, a humility of the mind. 
Thinking on God's riches and thinking on God's ability should keep us humble. And I don't know about you guys, but I think about how great God is and what he's doing in our church and in people's lives, and that is humbling. I think, man, who am I? I don't know what I'm doing. I'll be honest with you guys. (laughs) By the grace of God, we pray, we seek the Lord, and we see him move in such a mighty way in our own lives and in the lives of everybody around us. Further, he says, then, with all lowliness, then gentleness. The word gentleness is speaking of a a meekness. And meekness challenges us to tap into the Holy Spirit. Am I right? Because meekness is not something that we are very good at naturally. The idea of meekness in our minds is weakness. We think meekness and weakness are attached but they're actually not. Meekness is power under restraint. And Jesus demonstrated that so perfectly in the cross. With all the power and with all of the authority that he could have called down angels, legions of angels from heaven, he could have wiped out all of Jerusalem at that time and be like, I'm not doing this. But with all lowliness and gentleness, that meekness, Jesus died on the cross. That was total power under restraint. And to have meekness and that total power under restraint, we have to recognize who the real authority is. That it's Jesus himself. We don't have the authority. This isn't our church, this is his church. He has the authority. But again, these are natural responses, God glorifying responses to his love and to his greatness and to his ability and to his riches, lowliness and gentleness. These will be the marks of a worthy walk of this calling, this high calling as the church to walk in unity. And in those things, in lowliness and gentleness, it would be with no agenda of our own. I have, I have one agenda, truly. It's just preach Jesus. But not of our own agenda or our own ideology. We're not pushing our own ideology and we're not looking out for our own interests And you know what? Recognizing God to be the authority, we can be comfortable with meekness. We can be comfortable in surrendering our rights and our will to God because he's the authority. And that's where Paul starts. I am a prisoner of the Lord. He's the authority. And under his authority, I exhort you, I beseech you, I beg you to recognize the value that God has put on the church. It's a high calling. And within that high calling, 
We are to walk in unity. We are to look like Jesus. We are to walk like Jesus in lowliness and gentleness, further with long-suffering. Man, that is a tough one, isn't it? Long-suffering. These two words separately are pretty miserable. Ask any kid about anything that takes a long time. How long is it going to take? It's going to be a long time. They, they won't even accept that as an answer, my kids. How long till we get there? A long time. We do our road trips once in a while down to Florida. How long till we get there? I don't even, I'm not giving them a time. It's going to be a long time, like a day, okay? They won't accept that. Now, how many hours? Like 17 hours, okay? That's a long time. They can't handle that. They won't accept just a long time or wait a little while a little while longer. Why? Because we all agree with the kids that we, we don't have patience. We don't like waiting. So you have this idea of anything that takes a long time, we're not okay with it, add on to it suffering. You take suffering by itself and that's pretty bad. You put long and suffering together, we are in big trouble. But it's with long suffering that we are called to be together as the church. First Corinthians chapter 13 says, love suffers long. Man, that's hard. We don't like short suffering. We don't like a little suffering. How about long suffering? How about big suffering? And now this is specific to our relationship with one another. So we're talking about maybe that person that rubs you the wrong way. We're talking about the differences that we may have within the body of Christ. It takes long suffering. But long suffering is an expression of love as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. And lowliness and gentleness are worked out through love, through long-suffering. But there is suffering, and it does take a long time. And we don't like these things. We don't like waiting, and we don't like suffering. But let's think about the end product. The end product is that God would be glorified. And as we looked at that last week, that's what we, the church, are to all, be all about. Glorifying God. If we don't care about the end product, we have no interest in suffering long. Now, as you guys know, I'm into coffee. I've shared that. At Bridge Fest this weekend, I just made coffee. We had our table. We had a bunch of stuff about our church and, and the radio program and things like that. And we're talking to people. We easily could talk to people about that stuff. But I thought, why don't I make coffee and give it away and just share with people? And I get to talk with people while we're doing that. And some people are like, you're crazy. But you know what? I made over 100 cups of coffee over the last two days and got to talk to tons of people and, and just have interactions, godly interactions with people. 
And so here's the thing. Now, somebody will come up, and they're like, are you making coffee? I'm like, yeah, you want some? They're like, how much? I'm like, it's free. I just want to share it with you. And we get to talk. I said, but it's going to take like five or six minutes if you want to hang out. And some people are like, oh, I'll come back. Or they went and found somebody with that was something that was faster, you know. And then some people are like, yeah, I'd love to hang out with you. And so we get to hang out. We get to talk and have a godly conversation while I'm making coffee. And the thing is, we live in a society, in a world, that we want to press a button on a machine and get the cup of coffee 30 seconds later. Guys, I'm sorry, that's not coffee, all right? If we care about the end product, we can be patient. The result is much better. I promise you, the result is much better. That five or six minutes was worth it to the people that were drinking the coffee. You know why it was worth it? Because the process was also worth it. We were long-suffering together. We were having fellowship while I was pouring, doing a whole pour-over experience. And then the end product is, here's a good cup of coffee. And God bless you, have a great day. I'm really glad to get to know you and hang out with you for a few minutes today. See, there's blessing in the process of the long-suffering, and there's blessing in the result. But if we don't care about the end product, which is the glorification of God, then we will not care about long-suffering. We won't be interested. But walking worthy is about the glorification of God. Loving one another takes time and effort. And we remember in this, we need to remember that God is patient and long-suffering toward us. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, this is with Moses, God encountering Moses here. said, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is speaking of God who passed before, who gave Moses a little glimpse of himself. And out of that little glimpse of himself came this description of God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering. Long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth and keeping mercy, forgiving iniquity. This is who God is. To the third and fourth generation for thousands we're talking about. This is who God is, and he's so long-suffering toward us. Why wouldn't we be toward one another? We are sinners. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, yet God is long-suffering toward us. This whole passage there in Exodus 34, it's telling us that he is slow to anger. 
That's what it is, that long-suffering. He's slow to anger, and he's merciful instead. And that he even then is, is visiting, we're looking forward to from Exodus toward the coming of Christ where he is visiting God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus is God with us to bring life into our place of being dead and trespass and sin. And if God can do that for us, we need to remember what we've been forgiven and be gracious toward one another. We oftentimes get so impatient with each other. We draw conclusions. We make assumptions about each other. Forgetting that. That's a child of God. I've said it before. Listen, if you got problems with my kids, you got problems with me. So if you have problems with your brother or sister in Christ, that's God's kid. Then you have a problem with God. So let's settle it. That's what Paul is exhorting the church, guys. Let's settle it. Let's maintain the unity that Christ has established. We forget that that's a child of God. We have no patience. We, have no, we don't want to suffer long. But that it is an expression of love. Long-suffering is an expression of love. And we have to recognize, of course, there are going to be differences between us. That's why Paul is writing this to say, hey, guess what? You're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're going to have problems with each other. How are we going to handle those problems? In the midst of that, we need to have long-suffering. Long-suffering has been defined as the spirit that has the power to take revenge, but never does. So as members of the body of Christ, we have to remember that we have been bought by the blood of Christ and brought near to one another by the blood of Christ. With Christ as the head of the church, we should look like Jesus and follow through on what he desires of us which is to love one another, to walk in unity. In John 13, 35, he says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13 is a passage where you could, you could look at it, you could read, and it's where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and then he says, you do likewise. He wasn't telling the disciples, go start a foot-washing ministry. Go start the first church of holy foot-washing. He's telling them to do the work of a servant. That was the servant's job, to wash the feet of the guests. But Jesus did it, and he said, you do likewise. You do the work of a servant with all lowliness and gentleness. That's walking in humility. That's what it takes we have to love one another. Now here's the question, guys. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I ask you, as the body of Christ, does the world know it? Do they see our love for one another and are they impressed by it? Do they see our love for one another as a testimony of how great God is? You see, that's the high calling. That's what we are to walk worthy unto. 
that unity. Does the world know it? Or are we sometimes embarrassed? Are we sometimes embarrassed to say, oh yeah, I'm part of the church. And everybody's mad at each other. Everybody's arguing with each other. That's a charge to us. Paul is writing this to say, we need to walk worthy. We need to recognize that the way we interact with each other, the way we handle our relationships, the way we love one another testifies of who God is. And we need to be careful with that. It is precious. And he says further, then we are called to bear with one another in love. To bear with one another means that it's going to be hard. It's going to take hard work. It's not an easy thing. It's not this idea Paul's saying, guys, let's just hold hands and skip about everywhere and it's gonna be wonderful and glorious. And no, God needs to be glorified and that God will be glorified through our differences that we can settle through our love for one another. And we're gonna need to bear with one another in that love. We're gonna need to bear one another's burdens. We're gonna need to bear with our differences. We're going to need to lift one another up in time of weakness. But without love, we're not gonna be able to do that. Without love, we're not gonna be willing to or wanting to serve one another. So we're going to have differences. How do we handle our differences? And how do we handle ourselves when somebody's wronged us or further when we've wronged somebody else? Are we willing to admit it? Are we willing to walk in humility with lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering? Humility wins. Further, Verse three, Paul gives us a good exhortation on how to bear with one another in love. As he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What a gift that unity is. And that's what we need to remember. As I already said it, we are endeavoring to not make or conjure up. We are endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. So what that tells us is the unity has already been established. It's our responsibility to maintain it, to keep it. But humility is essential for unity. And that's not just agreeability or uniformity. It is a spiritual unity that is telling us it's not of us. It's not an earthly thing. It's not within ourselves that we can make it up. We could come up with a way to have unity or to be unified. It is unity of the spirit. The word endeavor here means to study or to work at learning. That's what it is. So as believers, as the church, we need to recognize as we bear with one another in love, that takes hard work, and we are endeavoring. We're on a mission. We have to work hard. We have to work at the learning process, and as believers, as the church, we are always learning. We need to recognize that we have not already attained or have been perfected, but we press on. We work hard at learning and growing, and we study to grow in keeping spiritual unity that's already been established. 
It's already been accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ. This unity of the Spirit is all about Jesus. It's not about patriotism. It's not about a political view. It's not about a philosophy in ministry. Love for one another, the unity of the body of Christ, is about Jesus Christ alone. And his blood has broken down the wall of separation. We need to stop rebuilding little walls all around. And we can easily mistake spiritual unity for political unity, for patriotism, for philosophy and ministry. But true unity is all about the blood of Jesus Christ. Further, he, he goes on to say it is in the bond of peace. Well, who is peace? It's Jesus, the Prince of Peace. He is peace. So Paul brings it back to Jesus again, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is Jesus that bonds the, or binds the church together. It is the blood of Jesus that has brought us together and keeps us together. So what do we need to do? Well, Isaiah chapter 26, verse three says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. It's through relationship with Jesus and through keeping our minds fixed on him, on the things above and not on the things of this world, that we will find that unity. You see, guys, division is the work of the enemy. And that division, man, the enemy is trying to divide and conquer, trying to get the sheep off by themselves so the wolf could come and take them out. Scripture tells us he's prowling about like a roaring lion. He's, he's sneaky and he's tricky and he's trying to get the sheep off by themselves, trying to divide them, get them mad at each other so I'm not going to church anymore. And then what happens? all alone, out of fellowship, without the, the body of Christ to support and to strengthen and to walk in unity. The enemy takes out people. Division is the work of the enemy. Why? Because then God is not glorified. But we have a high calling to maintain the unity of the body of Christ and to not let little differences get in the way the blood of Christ has accomplished this work. We keep our mind fixed on him. We walk with him. We trust, as Isaiah says, because he trusts in you. Whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. We trust in God. Put your trust in him. And watch what he'll do. Watch the support system that you'll have when you press into the body of Christ. There's great strength. And there's people, as I look around the room, I see people around this room that would testify of that. Say amen. The love that we have in the body of Christ is so strong and so great. 
We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, though, because we will easily get caught up in our differences, in our disagreements in the body of Christ. It's not worth it. So many things that we get caught up in dividing over are not eternal things. But to have, as Paul says, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is to fix our eyes on Jesus and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. With our eyes focused on Jesus and on the cross, we will not see the church as our enemies. We battle not against flesh and blood. We have a real enemy out there, the devil, who's trying to destroy, steal, kill, and destroy. The body of Christ is not so and should not be so. We are not enemies with one another. Sometimes it might feel like we are. But that's when we need to fix our eyes back on Jesus. That's when we need to fix our eyes on the things above and not on the things of this world and be reminded that, you know what, we are his workmanship. The church and the unity of the church is his workmanship. And we have a high calling to be able to set those things aside and to be reminded of the blood of Christ that has brought us together. And he has torn down the wall of separation. So let's fix our eyes on him. Let's pray.